Good morning. My name is Carrie Dietz Roberts. And I'm Rachel Dietz de la Cruz, and we're sisters. And our dad is someone that exemplifies love in many ways, uh, especially, I would say, through acts of service. Um, I remember uh, many years ago, an early undergrad, I had major surgery on both of my feet, and I stayed with my parents because I had to basically relearn how to walk in a three to four month period. Um, and every single night without being asked and without fail, my dad would rewrap my bandages. He fed me the whole time I was there. Um, another example is we all know what a pain moving is. And while I lived in Chicago, which is over four hours from my parents' house, he moved me eight times in 12 years. He drove the truck, he hauled the furniture. Um, and it was such a given that he would be there to help me that it literally never crossed my mind that other people may not have that same service just waiting for them for anything. He has also uh, moved a lot of things for me. Um, I was divorced a few years ago and had to kind of build my home up from ground zero and I got a lot of like amazing free and really heavy furniture and he would just drop whatever he had planned and whatever he was doing and schedule um times to come and pick it up and get it upstairs for me and I would offer I'm like dad I can get a mover like no we're gonna save you money we've got this we can do it and this last time um I was given a gorgeous china hutch. It's probably the nicest furniture I own. And he spent two weeks fixing his truck, his trailer and his car to be able to haul it in. Um, and he, of course, said, oh, I mean, well, I was going to do it anyway. Um, but he had to weld things together, set it all up, rewire lights, and then very close to single-handedly got that enormous thing up the stairs. Um, he also calls every week to ask me what I need from Costco and I offer to pay for it every week and every week he's like no you can pay me by inviting me over to help you with more things in your home <laughs> <laughs> but he really is incredible in the love that he shows consistently all the time yes very much so um, now we're going to read from scripture. Um, we will start with Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And Galatians 5.22 through 26. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. <clears throat> Luke 10, 30-37 says, In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. 
Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. And in case you, uh, you missed that, that's uh, Ryan Roberts' wife, Carrie, and her sister. And I think they're starting a new ministry entitled uh, One Guy in a Truck. So um, if any of you need help, I'm just saying, reach out to Ryan and, and Carrie. Um, I want to also underscore one thing Tommy said about this, uh, this family room. Uh, this is the first day that our new children's ministry director, Faith Taylor, is with us on-site working. So I want to just acknowledge that. We're so grateful to have Faith in our midst. And uh, if you're newer, newer to our church, um, she's going to do an amazing job with our children's ministry, as do uh, Matt Darty and Rachel Ingram with our student ministry. And I know our students are doing a lot of grilling and chilling this uh, summer. So if you're new with us in the church, this would be a great way to plug in middle schoolers and high schoolers. And my name is Bart Garrett. I'm the lead pastor here. Delighted to have you with us this morning. And, uh, you know, as a minister, you end up doing um, a few funerals, and some of them are more difficult than others. And and one that I did that was particularly difficult involved uh, one of two brothers who died one month apart. And it wasn't difficult because of their ages. They're actually in their late 70s. What was difficult is that both of these brothers were jerks. They were scoundrels, and um, one of them uh, who probably was at our church for the business contacts uh, passed, and then it was a month before that that his brother had passed, and I listened to the eulogy of that brother in preparation for the eulogy I was going to be doing, because a eulogy means quite literally a good word, and I wanted to have one good word to say about this brother, and so I stood up in front of the church, and I said, now, a lot of you know Larry. Uh, Larry's a scoundrel. He has cheated a lot of you out of a lot of things. He's lied. He has begged, borrowed, and stealed. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> so is that a true story? What is truth, really? I'm not sure. Um, it's a joke, but it's a great joke because it introduces one of my favorite paragraphs from a guy named David Brooks who wrote an op-ed in 2015 in the New York Times entitled The Moral Bucket List. And this is what David Brooks writes. He says, it occurs to me that there were two sets of virtues, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral." Whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful, were you capable of deep love? We all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. And maybe you hear that in your teens or 20s or 30s or even 40s like me and you say, I can still aspire to this kind of good life with the types of eulogy virtues that I would want. And maybe you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s or 80s and you're like, well, I'm not sure. Maybe it's too late. And and let me say to you, it's never too late. I, I think about Oscar Schindler who was made 
uh, famous by the movie Schindler's List. And this was a man who was an opportunist who just sought to make as much money as he could, motivated by profit. And by the end of his life, he came to show this extraordinary initiative and tenacity and courage when he saved hundreds, literally, of Jews in the context of Nazi Germany. So, how do we get there? How do you get there? How do I get there? How do we become the me that we want to be? And we've embarked on this summer teaching on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're sort of zeroing in on Galatians 5, verse 1, every week, which says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So there's a lot to unpack there, but suffice it to say this morning, we at WCPC and your pastors really believe that in Christ is true freedom and a genuine fruitful life. And that's why we're asking the question this summer, what does a Christian look like? And we're suggesting that a life that is animated and activated by the fruit of the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, is the way to live a life. And Tommy did a great job last week uh, talking about three ways in which we live a life. And it, I just want to plug our series overview document because you can find it on our website. And this also sort of unpacks those three ways of living. But Tommy suggested in that document suggests that we could either live, as Paul puts it, in the flesh or under the law or by the Spirit. And to live in the flesh is really to live to your whim, to your wish, and it's a shackled life because it's often shackled to excess or adrenaline or euphoria or boredom or emptiness. It might be shackled to a purpose or a meaning in your life that really doesn't extend beyond your own epidermis, right? Or you can live under the law, which often becomes a life that's shackled to things like, in failure, guilt, or shame, or as you look around at someone who's living a better life than you are, envy, resentfulness. Or maybe if you're succeeding, living under the law becomes a life that's shackled by pride or arrogance, which is really delusion because none of us lives the way that we think we do, right? Or then you become all judgy at the people who don't live quite as good as you. But what would it look like to live by the Spirit. And we've been pairing the fruit of the Spirit each week to a parable. And first up today is love, right? Which is not surprising that we're starting there because that's where all the cliches are found, right? Think about them all. All we need is love. Love conquers all. Love is love. Love is blind. What's love got to do with it, as Tina Turner saying, right? If you can't be the, with the one you love, then honey, love the one you're with, say Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I would do anything for love, as Meatloaf would say, and if you're in your 40s like me, everyone knows who Meatloaf is. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. We don't know what that is, but whatever it is, Meatloaf will not do it, okay? Cheesiest love lines. You're the cheese to my macaroni. One of my favorite. Let's flip a coin. Heads, you're mine. Tails, I'm yours. Ugh. So see, this is my fear getting into this text and this topic. My fear is that we're just going to sort of plop ourselves into an ocean full of platitudes because love is so generic, no one ever really says, well, you know, I'm just not a loving person. You look at the other fruit of the Spirit and they, they, you may hear someone say, well, I'm not very patient or I'm not 
very self-controlled. I don't have a lot of discipline. Or, or maybe I'm not really joyful. I'm just kind of Eeyore-ish. But no one really says, I just don't love. Because it's so generic, we can say things like, well, I, I mean well. I'm doing the best I can. At least I'm not as unloving as that guy. But love, I would suggest, is an inner disposition of the soul. That's why Paul starts here. It sort of informs these other aspects of the fruit. And so here's the big idea this morning. It's a question I want you to think about. It's this. Is love the inner disposition of my soul? Is love the inner disposition of my soul? And you may be asking the question as you hear that, hey, we're, we're, you're, you're talking about what does a Christian look like? Here we are in church. Um, maybe I'm exploring Christian faith and maybe I have a friend or a neighbor who is. And are you suggesting, Pastor, that only Christians can love? Or for that matter, only Christians can exercise patience or kindness or gentleness? And I would suggest there's a, a theological concept in, entitled the virtuous pagan and that's not intended to be a, a bad word at all, but this virtuous pagan is someone who doesn't confess Christ, but is more generous, more considerate, more loving, might be a better neighbor, a better curator and cultivator of earth, a better parent than you are. And I know people in my life like that. They don't profess Christ, but they make me look kind of unloving when I look at their life. So I would suggest, what I'm suggesting to you today is that the best model, the best means for this kind of life, and I wouldn't do what I'd do if I didn't believe this, the best model and the best means for being the most loving, the most kind, the most peaceful, the most joyful person that I can be at least, is the life of Jesus. So if you're exploring faith, would, would you consider this with me this morning? So John, called the beloved, beloved disciple, he wrote uh, three letters after the gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Could have better names for his letters, but that's what they're called at the end of the Bible. And in 1 John three sixteen, this is what he writes. He says, and, and consider this if you're exploring Christian faith. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So if you could imagine pulling out a magnifying glass for a second, and, and you know in the periphery everything's very cloudy, but right in the center it's very clear. Well, my suggestion to you is if you want to know more of what God is like, put Jesus at the center, and you'll see a picture of God. If you want to know more of what love is like, put Jesus' life in the center and you begin to see this beautiful picture of sacrificial love. John goes on and says it another way a few verses later. He says, and this is his command, verse 23, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us to. I, I might like to say it this way. Love is the final act, the first step, and the last dance. In other words, if you're in Jesus and Jesus is in you, the final act in your life is Jesus saying at the cross, it is finished. Every debt is paid in full. So your first step into a new life is a step of love. Take my love for you 
and extend it into the lives of your brothers and sisters. And that love is actually our last dance because there will be a moment forever and forever and ever and ever and ever and ever where all we will have and all we will need is the love of God and the love of one another. So, if you're a Christian, if, if this is your church, then I would ask you to consider a couple other verses. 1 John 4, 11, and 12, which is in the next chapter of the verse I just read. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love lives in us. This is amazing. Think about this for just a second. The evidence for God's existence. And, and I love philosophy. I'm, I'm an apologist at heart, and I love talking with people about uh, the ontological argument for God's existence and the teleological argument for God's existence and the phenomenolo- phenomenological argument, easy for me to say, for God's existence and the cosmological argument for God's existence. And if that's you, come talk with me. I love those arguments. But on the surface of things, how do people know God exists? By our love for one another. Christian, you want to love well? You love like Jesus did. This same John, three times in the gospel, he said, this is how you should love. This is how you should love. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. See, in that day there was the silver rule, don't do to other people what you don't want done to you. And then that was bettered by the golden rule. No, do some things for other people that you want done for you. And Jesus' platinum rule is, no, 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 it's not that. It's as I have loved you and given my life for you, would you love one another? So you might be asking at this point, so what does that look like practically? What does that mean when I wake up on Monday morning? I'm so glad you asked. Because that's actually the parable of the good Samaritan. You want to ask the question, what does love look like? Well, this is a conversation, and we should have backed up the scripture a little bit more, but it was a long reading, because it's a conversation between Jesus and this professor, this expert in the law, and the professor asked Jesus the question, hey, Jesus, what do I do to get eternal life? And this question of how to obtain eternal life was debated among Jewish scholars in the first century, so it wasn't a peculiar or odd question. People were asking it everywhere. And the emphasis on getting eternal life was on living under the law, as we've said, on obeying the law. So Jesus answers his question with a question, which is so Jesus, isn't it? And Jesus' question is, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the professor knows the law really well. As any good Jew would, he wakes up every morning and and recites the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus say? You're correct. Do this and you'll live. So the professor goes on and he says, okay, so Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, once upon a time, let me tell you a story, not a cliche, not a platitude, not an axiom on love. Let me tell you a story. And the setting of this story is the Jericho Road, which is notoriously dangerous. In 16 miles, you drop 5,000 feet in elevation. Narrow road, crack, cracky with rocks, and, and this is where all the Um, muggers and and robbers would sort of hide out and that's what happens 
It's called the bloody way. And this cast of characters involves this man who was robbed. And Jesus, if you caught on as you were hearing the story, accentuates this. He was robbed, attacked, stripped, beaten, deserted, and left for dead. And what happens? A second character comes by, this priest. Now this priest would go to the temple five times in a year, three festivals, two ordinary times. So the priest has just gotten clean, ceremonially speaking. So he's not going to want to touch this guy who's left for dead. So he just moves, scoots around, keeps walking. Second person to show up is the Levite. Now in that day, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, which means the Levites were sort of the custodial keepers for the priesthood. So maybe he saw in the bend of the road that, that his boss, the priest, didn't stop. So he's like, well, obviously I shouldn't stop either. So he just goes on about his way. And so then as you're listening to this story, a third traveler approaches. And, and the original listeners in this story would expect a Jewish layperson. Because the expectation in the story would be descending status. So it would be priest, Levite, layperson, or in Presbyterian parlance, you know, minister, elder, deacon, right? Papa bear, mama bear, baby bear. Harry, Hermione, Ron. Moe, Larry, Curly. I don't know where Shemp shows up, but that's another sermon, I suppose. So the priest, the Levite, and the drum roll, please, Samaritan. Now, Samaritans are from the hill country. They were called half-breeds. They didn't even worship God in the right place. And the animosity ran deep. In fact, disciples at one point when they were in Samaria asked Jesus if he would call down fire on the Samaritans. The disciples would call one another as a term of derision, you dirty old Samaritan. So listeners would assume that the villain has arrived. The Samaritan is here, and he's going to finish the job and just go ahead and kill this guy. But the rest of the story involves 12 action verbs. This Samaritan, what does he do? He comes, he sees, he takes, he bandages wounds with his own garment. He pours oil and wine at cost to himself. He puts this man on a donkey. He brings them to an inn. He takes care of them. He takes out two denarii. He gives them to the innkeeper. He says to the innkeeper, take care of them. And if you incur any cost, I'll cover those too. And so then Jesus shifts the question from who is my neighbor to which one of these travelers is the neighbor. And the professor chokes out his answer, I think. The one who showed mercy. Now, if I were snarky Jesus, I would have said to the professor, now, which one was that again? The first one? The third one? And what was his ethnicity? Jesus is not snarky, so he just says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, imagine for a second that this story is told differently as we conclude. Imagine if this professor asked Jesus, hey, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you. Your neighbor is a man just like you, credentialed, honored, dignified, tenured, traveling from Jerusalem, sees on the roadside this bruised and battered Samaritan. And what does he do? Rather than step over him and spit on him, he gets off his horse, he overcomes his prejudice, and he helps the man. Go and do likewise. So if Jesus told the story that way, what would we get? It would be the parable of 
the good Jewish man. The professor would be the hero. So the question is, why doesn't Jesus tell the story that way? Why does he tell this parable the way that he does? And this is where I conclude. Remember the question, what must I do to get eternal life? See, getting eternal life, getting the good life, was all about obeying the law. And the law was all about what? Loving God, loving neighbor. And Jesus' parable is all about taking that law as the words off of the scroll and writing it into this man's heart. In other words, addressing the inner disposition of this man's soul. So remember the big idea? It was a question I asked you. Is love the inner disposition of my soul? See, this story that Jesus tells is designed to have this guy put his soul on the operating table to see the inner disposition, to see which way it's leaning or sloping. And if you explored this man's soul, I think you might hear this man saying, what's the least I can do to do what I need to do to be good enough to get what I want? What's the least I can do to do what I need to do to be good enough to get what I want from God or from life or from whomever? And maybe there's another piece of this man's soul that says, and who should not be worthy of my love? See, some people should be in and, and some people should be out. And I, and I hate that it always becomes political, it seems like, in our day. But insert your political party of choice there. Or another disposition of the soul question. What does it do to my heart when someone I despise loves well? Mm. Who would it be virtually impossible for me to receive love from? If you despise, loathe the one who loves you, who sacrifices for you, then that action will either calcify your heart or soften your heart. It'll put love in the center of your life or hate at the center of your life. And so again, as I close, I come back to Jesus. I come back to Jesus. I come back to Jesus, the means whereby I might be able to love like that and the model whereby I might see love like that demonstrated. Martin Luther King Jr., in a, in a famous sermon the night before he was to be assassinated, I, I, I would honor him on this Juneteenth, he preached on this passage and he said this, you see the Jericho road was a dangerous road. It is a winding, meandering road, conducive for ambushing. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody path. And the first question the priest and Levite asked was this one. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen? Excuse me, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Good Samaritan reverses the question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, Jesus loved you this way. Jesus loved me this way. And we should go and do likewise. I'm going to conclude by offering the prayer of, of John Stott. Tommy prayed this last week. We're going to pray it as a church every week after the sermon. John Stott prayed this every morning. One of my mentors, Mark Laberton, worked with and for John Stott. And Mark described him to me is the godliest man he ever met. 
And this is the way he prayed. Would you join me in this prayer? It's on the screen. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen.